Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, reason the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria was Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria. Of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz Ask the sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. moment of Stanislav Petrov's life came when he decided to do nothing. He was a Russian military duty officer who was two hours into his shift when alarms started going off that an intercontinental missile had been launched from an American military base. This was at the height of the Cold War when the U.S. and Russia were on pins and needles about the, the threat of nuclear war. Normally, a duty officer would be surprised by this and jump to defensive action. And yet Petrov decided to seek clarity to figure out what was going on. This is how his reaction was described. After five nerve-wracking minutes, electronic maps and screens were flashing as he held a phone in one hand and an intercom in the other, trying to absorb streams of incoming information. 
Colonel Petrov decided that the launch reports were probably a false alarm. And he was right. The false alarm, and yet he got reprimanded for not responding immediately to what he saw. And yet, it was him doing nothing that helped avert nuclear war. In a, in, a, in a moment of crisis, he didn't panic. And yet, you and I know that in moments of crisis, we oftentimes do panic. How do you tend to respond in moments of crisis? To what or to whom do you tend to turn to to seek stability? What characterizes faith in moments of crisis? What characterizes faith in moments of crisis? First, trust in God's spoken word. King Ahaz, in this passage in Isaiah 7, is facing a severe crisis. Why? Well, verse 1 tells us that the king of Syria and the king of Israel had waged war against Judah, and Ahaz was the king of Judah. Now, let me back up and give you a little bit of context so you understand what's happening here. After the death of King Solomon, ten of the tribes of Israel decided not to be faithful to God, to the covenant he had established with the throne of David, and they broke off and decided to establish their own state independent of God. These tribes were, are, are called in the scriptures, and here in Isaiah 7, Israel, they're called Ephraim, capital city of Samaria. And I say that because as you read this chapter, you'll see Israel and Ephraim used interchangeably. This is describing the breakaway kingdom. Two of the twelve tribes remained faithful to God and faithful to his covenant, that he had made with the throne of David to preserve the throne of David. And it's the southern tribes that, that were called Judah. The capital, the center of that being Jerusalem. Isaiah 7 happens about 200 years into this division, into this dysfunction. And during this time, you had the Assyrian Empire, it was a massive empire, that was threatening to invade and gobble up all the little kingdoms around it, Syria and Israel being two of them. So, Rezin, the king of Syria, Becca, the king of Israel, decide we're going to join forces to defend ourselves against Assyria. And we want to get help, so we're going to convince Ahaz and Judah to join us. When Ahaz resisted, Syria and Israel attacked Judah and threatened to attack Judah, and to set up a, a, a new king to overthrow Ahaz. This is what we read in verse 6. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Now, how do King Ahaz and the people of Judah feel about this? Verse 2. And the house of David, that refers to the two tribes of Judah, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook 
as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were scared to death. They were struck with fear. In this moment of crisis, have you been there? Has a moment of crisis come on your life where you're scared to death? Where you're struck with fear? Maybe you're crumbling on the inside from the fear, and yet you're trying to hold it together on the outside for your employees or for your children or for your spouse. But it's in this moment that the question is raised, how do you respond? What characterizes faith in this moment when you are crumbling on the inside with fear? Because of this crisis that's come upon your life. Well, how did Ahab respond in this moment of crisis? But before I answer that, let's look at how God calls Ahab to respond in this moment of crisis. Verse 4. And say to him, Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your hearts be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, of the fierce anger of resident in Syria and the son of Ramon. God's word to Ahab. When these two enemies are poor, are threatening and waging war, God's word to Ahaz is to be careful, be quiet. Now that word quiet, in the original language, it doesn't mean to not speak. It means to be at rest. God's call to Ahaz was, be careful to do nothing. Be careful to rest. Ahaz was, Ahaz was faith with the children. He could either trust God's word and rest in his promises, or he could frantically go into panic mode and try to save himself. Yes, if he's going to trust God's word, what, what is God's word that he's trusting in this moment of crisis? Well, verses 89 describe God's word, which say, God said, listen, these two enemies, that right now you're, you're trembling underneath, these two enemies will be gone. I'm going to take away these threats. I'm going to take away Syria and Israel. And even the text so far as it lays out is giving hints to this. In verse 1, it says that Syria and Israel tried to mount an attack against Judah, but it didn't succeed. Why? Because God would allow it to succeed. Because God was committed to preserving the house of David. He was going to be faithful to his covenant promise. And then in verse 3, we read that Isaiah's son is named Sheer Jasher, which means a remnant shall return. God spoke clearly to Ahaz and said, listen, these enemies you're fearing right now will be gone. A remnant will live on. Be careful to do nothing. Rest in my promise. But what did Ahaz do? 2 Kings 16, 7 tells us, Ahaz formed an alliance with Assyria. Ahaz went to the king of Assyria and said, 
Hey, king of Syria, will you rescue us from Syria and Israel? And the king of Syria did. He rescued Judah from Syria and Israel. And then he would go on to attack Judah. Judah was like a mouse being attacked by two rats. And this mouse is being attacked, attacked by two rats, squeaks to the cat, will you rescue me? And the cat rescues the mouse and it has it for dessert. That's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. How are you responding in your moment of crisis? Are you responding with panic? Or are you responding with patience? Are you frantically trying to save yourself in this moment of crisis? Or are you patiently trusting God's word and resting on His promises? One of the tourist attractions in Chicago, Illinois is the Willis Tower. It's the third tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, about 1,400 feet high, 108 stories. But the tourist attraction is on the 103rd floor. It's called the Sky Deck. And it's this four-foot platform that extends out from the building with a glass bottom. And when you stand on it, you can see these amazing views. On a clear day, 50 miles, you can see four states from this platform. And you can look down 1,400 feet to the ground. Platforms made of an inch and a half thick laminate glass that can hold up to 10,000 pounds. In June of 2019, a woman and her two children were out on the platform. And the glass shattered. Throwing this woman and two children into severe pain. It turns out no one was in danger because the glass that shattered was a protective layer around the load bearing glass to keep it from being scratched. I saw a couple of you going, oh. if that doesn't describe our moments. The glass shatters. The glass that we think is stabilizing our lives shatters. Without us realizing that that's not the glass that stabilizes our lives. God's word, God's promises do. And God's word and his promises have never failed. He's a perfect track record. If you honestly read through the scriptures and you read through God's promises, you will not find one promise that has failed. Glass shadows. Everyone wants security. Everyone wants stability in a moment of crisis. 
the end of verse 9 describes what that stability is and where it's found. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you don't trust God's word, if you don't trust his promise, and you frantically run to something or someone else to save you, that will never bring the stability you're looking for. In fact, it will only add to the instability and the trouble in your life. I love the way Oswald Chambers puts it. He says, it is the most natural thing in the world to be scared. And the clearest evidence that God's grace is at work in our hearts is when we do not panic. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. What characterizes faith in Lord's presence? It's trust. In God's spoken word, which we have now in His written word. But second, it's not just trust in God's spoken word, it's trust in God's embodied word. God comes to Ahaz in his fear, in his moment of crisis, and he calls for Ahaz to ask for a sign to bolster his trust in God's word. To ask for a sign, verses 10 and 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. God says, I will give you something tangible, something you can see, something you can touch, so that you, Ahaz, can be assured of my trustworthiness. As Ahaz responded. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz already knew who he was going to trust. And it wasn't God. He already knew he was going to trust Assyria to get him out of this moment of crisis. He wasn't going to trust God. What's interesting here is Ahaz's unbelief gets couched in his religious language. Alright, that's the reality is, if you don't want God, you can find a way to make your unbelief sound possible. And that's exactly what Ahaz does. Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, so God gave him a sign. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, how are we to understand this sign? Well, it's fulfilled in two ways. It's fulfilled in the immediate, and it is fulfilled in the future. In the near term, Isaiah would have a son, give birth to a son. We read this in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And the birth of his son would mark the fall of Syria and Israel, these two great enemies of Ahaz and of Judah. 
But this sign also has future fulfillment. And the future fulfillment is spoken by Matthew in his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew goes back to this prophecy in Isaiah 7 and says the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So you have a near-term fulfillment in the birth of Isaiah's son. Then marks the fall of the two enemies of God's people. And then you have the, the, the long fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In the birth of Christ, then marks the fall of the two greatest enemies of God's people, and that is sin and death. This sign was fulfilled. But this begs a deeper question. Why does God give signs? We see them throughout the scriptures. If you read through the Bible, you will see God give signs throughout the scriptures. Why? And what are they? Well, a sign is just something tangible, something you can touch, something you can see, that signifies something or points to something. Now, why does God give us something? Before Ian, before Hurricane Ian, made landfall in Florida. I read a tweet uh, of someone in Orlando, a woman in Orlando, who tweeted about some clouds that she saw in the sky that were in the shape of praying hands. And she said because of that, she knew everything was going to be okay. Human beings long for something tangible. Long for something they can see to hang their hopes on. Are we long for something we can get hold of that we can hang our hopes on? The problem is we manufacture signs that we want to hang our hopes on that aren't necessarily given by God. And so we'll pick a sign and, and say that's what we're going to hang our hopes on when it's not necessarily a sign from God. But what we see in the scriptures is that God does give signs that are intended for his people to hang their hopes on. And all of these signs in the scripture end up pointing to the same place and ultimately culminate in one sign that we hang our hopes on. So, you've got God's sign that he gives to Abraham to confirm his covenant with Abraham and his, his presence, his abiding presence with Abraham and God's people. And that sign is a sign of circumcision. It was a bloody sign that marked the uh, the the removal of skin, which signified the bloody work of Christ one day to remove our sin. You have God's sign given to Noah at the end of the flood with a rainbow in the sky. That is still a sign we have today. And the rainbow in the sky is a bow, like a bow and arrow, except the bow points up towards heaven, not down towards earth. Which signifies that the arrow of judgment would pierce God's Son instead of His people. Then we have here God gives a sign to the prophet Isaiah. And the sign is the birth of His Son, which would mark the, the fall of the enemies of God's people, signifying a future Son to come, the Son of God, that would mark the fall of the two greatest enemies that we have, which is sin and death. All these signs are pointing to the same place. And here's where they culminate. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, 
The scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. They said, Jesus, give us a sign. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The scribes and the Pharisees wanted more miracles. But God knew that more miracles would only harden their hearts even further in their unbelief. They wanted a divine magic show. Problem is, magic shows never change the human heart. It's a common thought of day. If I just would, if I could see a miracle, I would believe. And the answer is no. No, we wouldn't see a miracle and believe. There, there's only one sign that changes the human heart. And all the signs that God gives throughout His story of redemption in the Bible, from Old Testament to New, point to and lead to this one sign. One sign that can change the human heart. And it's the sign of Jesus' resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A person fully God, fully human, God's embodied Word. The Word became flesh that overcame the two greatest enemies that we have, which is sin and death. In moments of crisis, You need to be assured that your crisis is going to end in salvation and not judgment. Right? Or, or in your moment of crisis, you need assurance that it's going to end in or be about discipline and transformation, not punishment. Right? And that this that crisis is, I want this to be salvation, not judgment. Want this to be salvation, not judgment. Look at how God brings judgment in verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, I'm speaking to Ahaz and Judah here, and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's when the kingdoms split, they broke away. The king of Assyria. Chapter 8 will describe this judgment as a flood. And the flood is the king of Assyria moving in to wipe out Syria and Israel, the two enemies, but then the flood would also reach Judah, Ahaz, and Judah. And, and, and look at what the flood does to Judah in Isaiah 8 8. And it will sweep on into Judah. So it wipes out the enemies. It brings judgment on the enemies, but it now encroaches on Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Judah would survive the flood of judgment. It would come from Assyria, but but barely. It would, it would rise up to their neck. 
So, so the, the flood would be judgment to the enemy. It would be salvation for Judah, but not after it had come all the way up to their neck and almost consumed. It's not the first time that you see a flood in the Bible bringing both salvation and judgment at the same time. The flood in Genesis brought judgment on humanity, but salvation to Noah and his family. The crossing of the Red Sea, the waters of the Red Sea, brought judgment on the Egyptians, but salvation to Moses and God's people. And here we see the same thing happen. This flood of judgment wiped out the enemies, but it reached up to the necks of God's people. They still suffered. There was still crisis. But the remnant remained. Crisis functions the same way in our lives. Crisis is a flood. It's a flood that brings salvation or judgment depending on what you do with the sign of Jesus' resurrection. The sign has been given. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical account. If you reject Jesus' resurrection, you reject that sign. Then Christ is pretty judgment. If you receive or embrace the sign of Jesus' resurrection, then crisis brings salvation. That's that word. If you reject Jesus' resurrection, then the crisis in your life takes away or threatens to take away that which you think is going to save you or bring you joy. If you embrace the sign of Jesus' resurrection, you embrace his resurrection, then crisis brings you life because it takes away that which can't save you and brings you to the person that is saving you and can save you and can bring you eternal joy. And so crisis ends in life and salvation for those that embrace the resurrection. But if you don't embrace the resurrection, it threatens to take away that which you founded your life upon, and that's why it brings so much fear. It's because the very thing that I believe is going to stabilize my life, give me meaning, give me hope, is being taken away, and I'm scared to death. When you trusted Christ, now it's, this hurts, but what's being taken away is not stabilizing my life. It's not the meaning of my life. It's not the joy of my life. And it's bringing me to Jesus. Your joy and stability is found. What, what, what's interesting about this judgment in Isaiah 7 and 8 is the flood actually does reach the necks of God's people, the of his people. I mean, they, they're, they feel like they're barely surviving. And isn't that true in crisis? Don't you feel like, even if you're trusting Christ, don't you feel like, I'm about to be undone? This flood feels like it is about to get over my head and consume me. God's word is true and his promise is true. That is that if you're in Christ, the flood will never consume you. It can't consume you. It can only save you and bring you further into a relationship with Christ, which is a relationship of trust. The flood saves you from something that can't save you. And God is so gracious. He's been walking with Christ for many, many years. 
Your brain fries to figure it out. That's how you feel like you're being consumed. And then what you do is save me from something that can't save me. And we all struggle with our doubts, and we all want to get our hands on something else that we can touch that we're going to base our joy on. And when we start to do that, God is so gracious. To send a crisis to say, I'm going to take away what can't save me. Return to Jesus. Let me take you back to the Willis Tower in Chicago. 1,400 foot building. 134, sky depth. Woman and her two children standing on this piece of glass 1,400 feet above the ground. And the glass shatters. Panic sets in. Reality, it was just a protective layer of glass around it. And the glass that was holding them was solid and sure, and they weren't going anywhere. God brings crisis into your life to shatter the glass that can't save you. So that you will see and stand firm on the glass that can. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. What is God shattering in your life? What has God been shattering in your life? Is He shattering the American dream? Or the white picket fence that you dreamed of since you were a kid? Is He shattering the career success? that you have envisioned since you graduated from college? Is he shattering the perfect children that you were convinced you would raise? If you crossed the T's and got all the eyes? Is he shattering that relationship that you thought would end in marriage? Crisis in the human heart is a gift. It's a gift. Because it takes you from that which can't save you. And delivers you to the one, the only one, Jesus Christ, who can and is saving you and who can bring you eternal joy. Father, we confess collectively that we are a people in moments of crisis that panic. We panic. And we frantically try to grab hold of things to save ourselves. Father, we confess we're not patient. And that, Father, we long to be patient. We long to patiently trust your word and trust your promises, and yet we need your Holy Spirit to pull us out of our panic and to bring us into a patient place of trust. Would you do that, Father? There are those here this morning that are squarely in a moment of crisis. 
and they're panicking. And they need your grace. They need your Holy Spirit to pull them out of panic and to turn their eyes on your Son, Jesus, who is the yes of every one of your promises. So that they can patiently rest in Christ. Father, would you do that for us? We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.